Well, stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text this morning. If you happen to not have a Bible with you, I would invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles. It should be nearby you, perhaps even in front of you. And you can find our text this morning on page 917. As we continue to make our way through this great story of the book of Acts, we come today to one of its more famous parts, the first 19 verses of chapter 9, and the conversion of this man named Saul from Tarsus. So let me read that text for us and pray for our time, and then we'll begin together. So here now as my God speaks to you through his word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate. Or drink. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that it might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you by the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we are grateful that you have revealed the light of your truth to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, and we pray that even the Spirit would fill our hearts now to illumine our minds, our eyes, and open our ears to that truth that we might respond with repentance, that we might respond with obedience, uh, that you would raise our gaze to Jesus Christ, that we might hear with earnestness and meekness, knowing that this might be the last sermon we ever hear, this might be the last sermon I ever preach, and so help me to preach with clarity and uh, with kindness and with courage, and we pray it in Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. There are some things that seem to change a life, aren't there? Uh, you can think, I suppose, of a young family uh, hearing that the mom is pregnant for the first time. Or you might even say, if it's what we've already observed this morning, that the baptism of a, a little child means now everything is different. Or it could be something like children coming home uh, to discover that one of the parents has received a terminal diagnosis about cancer. And that parent is not expected to see out the end of the year. And of course, you can have families for which an event happens and everything changes. The same thing happens at a national level too, doesn't it? Every time we elect a president, everything changes. A pandemic can come along the way and everything changes. A declaration of war happens and, and everything changes. Uh, there are times when events happen and an individual's life is never the same. There are times when an event happens in a family's life. A nation's life is never the same. But every so often... There are events that happen, and human history is never the same. And that's exactly what we get in our text this morning of Acts chapter 9. A singular moment in redemptive history where believers and unbelievers alike recognize that after this trip to Damascus, human history was never the same because of what the Savior said to this man named Saul. Now, kids, your, your summer months might be bringing to you, perhaps in the next few days, perhaps even in the next few weeks, a road trip of sorts. Uh, my own family is only a couple of weeks away from a very long road trip to the north parts of our country. And I wonder how you tend to spend your road trip. You know, you might look outside of the window playing these games that your parents have invented. You might have some sort of a screen in front of you occupying your attention. Or you might, I trust, have a good book in front of you that you read along the way to pass the time. Well, what we know about this man named Saul, he's going on a road trip from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's a trip of about 150 miles. Walking it would have taken him something like two weeks and along the way, as he's moving northeast from Jerusalem, he would have seen the Samaritan Mountains. He would have seen the Valley of Jezreel. He would have passed by the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And we come to this road trip that changed human history. It's why one scholar has said, no other event has so changed world history except the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ of, of Nazareth. And I trust we're going to be able to understand exactly why that's true. It's actually so important, this conversion of Saul, that it shows up three times, the story of his conversion, three times in the book of Acts itself. Here is the first time, of course, in chapter 9. Then Paul is going to appear before his Jewish brethren in chapter 22 and recount the whole story all over again with additional details and different perspectives on the matter. And then he shows up before King Agrippa in chapter 26 and repeats the whole story over again. And I trust that you might be able to see along the way this morning. If you get Paul's road trip to Damascus right, his encounter with the Savior on his road trip to Damascus right, so much of the New Testament begins to make much deeper and clearer sense as Paul becomes the main teacher and theologian of God's glory contained in the face of Jesus Christ. So, our simple theme this morning is Saul's conversion and 
commission. That's what we're going to get along the way today. And I want you to see it actually in three parts. We'll notice, first of all, the rebel in the first couple of verses before we turn to the redeemer. And then we see at the end the requirement. So the rebel is what we find in verse 1 and 2. Some of you are old enough to remember, aren't you, a movie that was titled Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, Here is a rebel with a cause. Uh, Notice what's happening in verse 1. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, Students, it pictures not so much breathing out threats and murder as much breathing in. It even almost has this word picture of sorts of a great bull snorting in this great air and his vehemence and his violence. Because you, if you've been with us at least in recent weeks, we've met this man Saul, haven't we, already by this point. You think back to the end of chapter 7. It's there that the, the great martyr, first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen, preaching the gospel. And in order that the Jewish leaders could have better aim with their stones, they take their jackets off and where do they throw them? At the feet of this young man named Saul. And the language there is he approved of this execution. And that approval seems to be much more than just mere assent to what was happening as much as it is some sort of authority to approve what was happening there to Stephen. And then as the text moved its way into chapter 8, we saw quite clearly that Saul was trying to enact his own final solution to the Christian question. He's going house to house to take believers and imprison them. And we know from later on in the accounts of Paul in the New Testament, cast his vote for many of their executions. And so he's so zealous to persecute the church. You see, now he's willing to walk two weeks northeast to be able to run out even more believers. Look at how verse 1 through 2 continues. The high priest is the one to whom he went, and he asked, Saul did, for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So that's the purpose, isn't it? That's the rebels' cause, to get to Damascus, to round up more Christians, take them all the way back south to Jerusalem, where he might see many of them put to death. And you might want to ask the question, certainly I want to ask it here this morning, the very question that uh, Jesus even asks of Saul just later on in our passage. And that uh, question is, why? Why is Saul so zealous to persecute Christians? And what you need to know about Saul is that we actually have much in God's word by way of his autobiography. You know, students, if some of you ever aspire to be something of a historian, you, you might know and you might want to stash away in your mind that historians love to study figures that spoke often autobiographically or wrote autobiographically about themselves because it's always much more of a joy as a historian to not just analyze the events that belong to a particular person, but be able to understand his or her personal motives, ambitions, thoughts, and reasons for the events And if you've read your New Testament well, you know that it's almost, isn't it, in every single letter of Paul that we get autobiographical information. He does it with the Romans, he does it to the Corinthians, he does it to the Galatians, the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, pastoral epistles as well. And when you piece all of these things together that he says about his own life, what becomes clear, I think, are at least 
two reasons why he was persecuting the church in this way. Frankly, one of them is so obvious, we can't ever miss it. The other one, though, I think is actually there in the text of God's word, but perhaps is a little bit more subtle. So number one, the reason why he was persecuting the church was due to his zeal for religious purity. He tells the Philippians that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He tells the Galatians that he was far outstripping any of his peers in advancing in the truths of the Old Testament in obedience to Pharisaical traditions and their legalistic tendencies. Paul was the best of the best at this time, is what he says. As to the law, he says, blameless. And so you want to think about Paul, and he's persecuting the church. He sees Christians as nothing more than a deviant sect of Judaism. He almost sees himself as a New Testament, a new, a new covenant even. Phineas in the Old Testament with zeal for the Lord. He's going to purge the evil from the midst of God's assembly. So he has this zeal for religious purity. Uh, but you also probably should recognize that he's persecuting the church. And I think it's quite clear in the text for a second reason. And that's his religious pride. He makes it very clear, particularly to the Galatians and Philippians, that he was the best of the best. Nobody knew their Old Testament better than Saul. Nobody was more obedient to the traditions than Saul. But then who shows up in Acts chapter 6 but this deacon in Christ's church named Stephen? And what does he do? He starts to teach. He starts to preach with such power, the text says, that even people like Saul cannot withstand him. And if you know anything about the best of the best, they tend to tolerate no rivals. Perhaps some of you in years past, you might have seen this ESPN documentary that was done of Michael Jordan and his glory days with the Chicago Bulls. And one thing that became clear in that documentary, how lousy of a teammate he was. So zealous was he to be the best of the best that he couldn't get along with any competitors or rivals. So why then is it perhaps therefore understandable that in his religious pride, it's almost as this authoritarian coat rack that Saul is there approving of Stephen's execution. Even later on in Acts, one of his accounts about his conversion almost speaks about the plagued conscience he had over this man named Stephen preaching a gospel that he didn't know. So the rebel is on his way to Damascus. And you'll see it's on the way that he meets the Redeemer. Notice verse 3. As he was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. He says in chapter 22, he was walking toward Damascus at this point at midday. I suppose we could all go outside, couldn't we, in something like an hour's time. It's midday here in North Texas in the summer. The sun is bright. But some of you might know that ancient Middle Eastern world the sun at midday is even much brighter than it is here. And Paul will say later on as he's giving his testimony that what shone around him was a light that was even brighter than the sun. So it was about three years ago, almost exactly, that some of you remember there was this total lunar eclipse. And maybe you went outside that day, I think it was about 11.55 a.m. our time, that you could look up into the sky and see this total lunar eclipse. And, and kids, if you did something like that, I imagine that you had perhaps a parent, perhaps an adult leader that said, now don't look directly up there. 
right? You can't do it. It's going to harm your eyes, and so you need some sort of protection. You need some sort of ability to look into that. And what Saul is telling us later on in the book of Acts is even staring into that kind of eclipse is but a flickering candle to the light of the risen, ascended Jesus Christ shining forth in all the Shekinah glory of God. So bright and white was it that Saul does what he can only do. You'll notice verse 4, he falls to the ground. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, I've told you before, I'd love to have a tone kind of instrument with the Bible. Like, you know, what was the tone of Jesus Christ in this passage? I think it's probably pleading. Uh, But we know sometimes Jesus shows up, the Lord shows up in such a way that it's quiet. Bright, white light surrounding that road to Damascus. Paul is on his face, and so maybe the Lord only needs to say, Saul. So, maybe he was distracted in his ravenous rage, and so he speaks much louder. Saul! Saul! As I said, probably pleading, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if you know your Bible well enough, you know that what's been used is what fancy people would call the double vocative. That's the name repeated twice. Can you think of other times in the Bible where a name is repeated twice? Abraham. Abraham. Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel. Even those instances help us prepare our minds for what's getting ready to come, which is a prophetic commission. So often when God appears to commission one of his prophets, he speaks their first name twice, not just for emphasis, but to help them learn to listen up. Why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? Notice verse 5 at the end, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And surely it's a simple sentence that shattered Saul's religious world. Everything that he held dear seems to fall apart with just these simple words from the Savior because in a few words, what has he noticed? Well, certainly we want to notice at least two things. Uh, That he is the resurrected Savior. Here was Saul persecuting people that were preaching the gospel of crucifixion and resurrection. And he has been denying it all along, thinking it's just a hoax from this uh, Judaistic sect. And now what is he hearing? But the resurrected Savior talked directly to him. But not just that. It's not just words of resurrection. It's words of identification. Why are you persecuting me? Saul might say, I'm not persecuting you. Persecuting these people. But you might then begin to understand why so often in his later letters, he speaks of the church as what? The very body of of Jesus Christ. That Christ so identifies with his people that a persecution against his people is nothing more than persecution against him. That's why Paul will later say that his sufferings are filling up what is lacking in the body of Jesus Christ. And I suppose that you might be in the room today and uh, you might need to reckon with that reality, the the very intimacy of of Christ's body. Uh, Maybe he even breaks over the horizon of your heart today saying, I am Jesus, the one you're slandering. I am Jesus, the one you're tearing down. I'm Jesus, the one against whom you constantly complain. I am Jesus, the one that you want nothing to do with. Of course, he can't see after this encounter. 
So he gets up, you'll see in verse 7, he's commanded to rise and to enter the city. Uh, we're told in the next verse that those who are with him, his traveling companion, his companions, his entourage, they could hear what was going on but not see what was going on. So they lead him by the hand into the city of Damascus and it's there. He has his own three days in the belly of the fish without sight, neither eating nor drinking. And it's in chapter 10 that he hears the requirement. I went to a symphony several years ago with, with Emily. We were going to see one of my uh, favorite pieces that was playing down at the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. And as some of you might have done when you've gone to such an event, you just kind of stare around at the players and you notice, you know, who's the first chair of, of this instrument, who's playing the important parts of this movement. And if the symphony at least is playing a piece that doesn't have a lot of particular points where the percussion plays, you'll see someone staring almost blankly at a music stand in the back of the organized orchestra. And it's probably this guy who plays percussion and he seems altogether bored. He seems altogether indifferent to the scene and, and this particular piece that was going on. And he just sat there. And he stared at this music stand for minutes and minutes and I trust actually dozens and dozens of minutes on end. And near the end of the symphony, he suddenly stood up he grabbed his cymbals as the symphony reaches crescendo. He smashed those things together. Then he sat right back down. And it was a man that had momentary, but not minor, significance. That's exactly what happens here with this man named Ananias. He never shows up after this passage. Momentary, but not minor, significance. For notice, he has his own kind of experience of hearing from the Lord. Verse 10 and 11, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. He has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in, laying his hands on him that he might regain his sight. Uh, you can see the qualities of Ananias, can't you? Uh, Paul will later talk about him as religious and highly respected, devout he was as an early believer. He, he seems to be on, on speaking terms with Jesus, not as though Jesus speaks to Saul, and Saul's like, well, who are you? Ananias says, well, here I am. What do you want me to do? And what Jesus wants Ananias to do is... Be faithful and obedient to a command that stretches him to the limit. I trust you know that oftentimes God will command you in a way that stretches you to the limit. Because what's that limit to which Ananias is stretched? Well, look at what his own response is in verse 13 and 14. Lord, I've heard much about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. You mean to tell me you want me to go to the man that has an extradition order in his pocket to take me back to Jerusalem where I'm probably going to die? That's exactly what Jesus has just apparently said to Ananias. You mean you want me to do what? Well, oftentimes when God speaks to his people, it might come with that force of, you want me to do what? But he still commands further, doesn't he? You see verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings 
and children of Israel. Saul will often reflect on this. Paul will often speak about this later on in his own ministry. Uh, One particular place when it comes to his own commission. And how the Lord Jesus Christ sent him forth in his account in chapter 26 when he talks about this before Agrippa. He says that the more specifics were added to this commission. Actually, probably there on the road to Damascus. Where he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. So here are the details filled in. I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those, and have a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So his commission is what? To preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That's what Ephesians chapter 3 says. And it's why, you may not realize this, his name was actually never changed from Saul to Paul. Saul was just his Hebrew name. Paul was just his Greek name. But when we get to Acts chapter 13... He's almost never called Saul ever again. And he's called Paul. Why? Because his mission is to the Gentile world. His mission is to the Greek-speaking world. His mission is no longer to the Jewish-speaking world. Something radically happens, doesn't it, when Jesus converts someone. So radical, in fact, that it's understandable why many people think A name has been changed. An identity has been changed. A commission has been given that's altogether different than the one the individual used to have. So you'll see in 17 through the end, Ananias is obedient. He goes to Saul, not with any sense apparently of trepidation. You'll notice in verse 17, he simply says, Brother Saul, lays his hands on Saul. Saul's baptized. He is then waiting in Damascus to do what the Lord has called him to do. And I suppose it's important to maybe even glance through that truth at the end that that Saul is converted and he's immediately included in the life of Christ's church. That conversion is always inclusive of being part of God's people. Uh, The requirement is that he would go, that he would preach the gospel to all nations. Several months ago, one of the elders and I here at the church, we sat down with a few brothers that wanted to meet with us and talk to us about our Presbyterian doctrine of baptism. And so we sat down at the lunch table, and uh, I said to one of the brothers across the table, I said, so tell me how you were converted. And he looked at me somewhat quizzically, uh, I suppose maybe because he was like, aren't we here to talk about uh, baptism, not, not conversion? But he realized, like many of you might have experienced before, I just wanted to know, as many people wanted to know perhaps in years past of your own life, how was it that you came to faith in Jesus Christ? And he began to recount God's grace to him in a a kind way, in a faithful way, in a a moving way. I wonder when the last time was that, that you were asked, hey, share your testimony of how you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And I wonder not just what story did you tell, but what did you emphasize from the work of the Lord in your life. Uh, What do you think Saul would emphasize about the work of the Lord in his life? Uh, You might think it'd be easy to tell a testimony if he had this kind of road to Damascus-like conversion 
experience. But what you need to know is that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, when Paul is talking there to his protege Timothy about his kind of autobiographical realities, he says that God's mercy appeared to him so that as an example of God's perfect patience, the story of God's kindness to Saul would help those who are to believe in Jesus Christ. So, therefore, Saul sees something, Paul sees something in this account of a heart that's converted to Christ, a heart that's converted by Christ, that's something of an example. You might not go down the road this day, you might not be on a road trip later on this summer and be stopped immediately in your tracks with this blinding light from heaven, an audible voice from the Lord speaking to you. But I want you to see from our text three simple things as we begin to close that are always true about all conversions. When Christ calls a person, what happens? Number one, when Christ calls, it's the call of sovereign grace. It's the call of sovereign grace. Uh, You see that, don't you? Uh, I trust. Oh, and we're told in verse 15, speaking to Ananias, go, for Saul is a chosen instrument. What was he doing when he was converted? He's trying to go kill more Christians. So I trust students, you recognize that there's nothing you can ever do to earn that sovereign, gracious call of Jesus Christ. Saul was doing the exact opposite. And yet in God's sovereign, preordained, decreed plan, it was that moment, on that road, on that day, that it was time for him, who was a persecutor, to now become a proclaimer. He who was a murderer to now become a minister. He who was an apostate to now become an apostle. I trust even for some of you in the room today, you might have been praying, I suppose, for, for years, maybe even decades, for a loved one or family member to turn to Jesus Christ. And you might think, it seems utterly impossible that now they would actually do it. Do you think it would have seemed anything other than utterly impossible that Saul of Tarsus would go preach the gospel? That's exactly what happens in next week's text. It's unbelievable to the early Christians. You mean to tell me Saul is preaching the gospel? No chance. It's why in his letters he's always defending himself. It's why it's so hard for early Christians to believe. And yet God's radical grace is always doing that, isn't it? It's taking exactly what you would never expect and turning it into what he's always expected and decreed it would be. When he calls, it's a call of sovereign grace. Number two, when he calls, it's a call to suffer. It's a call to suffer. Notice verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's not surprising that Saul becomes the theologian of suffering in the Christian life. Speaking about it even as this grace that has been given to God's people. Do you know that you could come to Jesus Christ and things actually get worse? But you still must come to Jesus Christ. You know, you could be in here today thinking, well, I'd come to the Lord Jesus Christ as long as things get better. And he might be wooing you and welcoming you by his sovereign grace and actually telling you, no, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse for the rest of your life. Worse from an earthly perspective. But you gain heaven's eternal blessings. 
I want to know what, what, what did Saul get by way of information of what he was going to suffer. You might know it to the Corinthians. He lays out this laundry list of all the sufferings, these beatings, these persecutions, these tortures, shipwrecked at sea, staying somehow alive overnight at the sea, facing these 39 beatings five different times, nearly at the place of death. Did, did he get some type of a vision? Saul, this is what you must suffer for me. Uh, do you know that God always means for his people to suffer that he might be magnified in their life. It's why Paul himself says what? All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. So it's a sovereign call. It's a call to suffering, certainly. And lastly, it's, it's a call to see. There's this metaphor of sight. Uh, it's easy enough to discern and discover in the text. Ananias comes at the end, lays his hands on Saul, and we're told in verse 18, that he regained his sight. What did he see that so blinded him? Well, it's clear enough. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, if I saw the Lord Jesus Christ today, I certainly might respond with that obedience and repentance. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what, what Paul says is every time that the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, what is preached is nothing other than the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you see that light of the world that removes all darkness? You need only open the eyes of your heart to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ preached to you. In the very gospel of God. What happens when a heart is converted? What happens when a heart is commissioned? Well, it always comes through a call of sovereign grace. It will be a call that includes suffering. But it's a call, isn't it? For all eternity to see the king in all of his beauty. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to understand the power that is ours in Jesus Christ, that the very same might and strength that rose him from the dead is available to us by faith in your Son, that dead hearts might be raised to life, cold hearts might be made warm and full of joy in your Son. So give us that power to carry forth your name to wherever we go this week, knowing that you have commissioned us likewise to carry the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond now to God's word, turning in our hymnals. As Saul was commissioned to carry the name of Jesus Christ, let's turn to hymn number 297 and sing, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name.